0: Well, hey guys, and welcome to another episode of the True Tone Lounge. Today, we are visiting with Rick Holmstrom out in Southern California. So glad to get a chance to, uh, to talk with Rick. He's an amazing blues artist, uh, fronts his uh, trio, the Rick Holmstrom Band, and he has a new album coming out on February 26th called See That Light. There's currently a, a, a single out, uh, Take My Hand, uh, and, you know, besides being an amazing solo artist, he's also for the last 13 years, he's been uh, a Mavis Staples, you know, sideman and band leader and uh, we're just, yeah, fortunate to get to sit down with you. So Rick, first off, just thank you so much for doing this.
1: Yeah, you bet. Thanks for asking me to do it. It's my pleasure. Yeah. So I was really uh, intrigued
0: uh, in your in your press release it said at the very at the very end of it, it said, uh, Luelli Records, named after his beloved daughters, who have been his north star during a dark year." Tell me about that.
1: Well, yeah, I have um, two daughters, Lusa, who's seventeen, and Ellie, who's fourteen, and they, of course, like all kids now, are going through distance learning. You know, normally they would have been, Lusa would have been a senior in high school. Ellie would have been a freshman. Right. They, um, so it's been a very strange year for all of us. And the girls right now are in the house doing, on their laptops, doing their, their work. And I think um, what that press statement was trying to convey, I guess, was just that after a couple of months of, just shock, like most musicians or anybody, you know. Just what's going on here? Come, you know. I came home in March from Australia with Mavis, very excited about a a year, the year ahead. You know, we yeah. we had a tour with uh, a short tour with Patti Griffin, a longer tour with Nora Jones, and uh, we were going to play Wrigley F- State Wrigley Field with Chris Stapleton and Mike Campbell. You know, it's going to be
0: a great year. <laughs> Yes. Personally I was I was planning on getting tickets for uh I think uh, I think Mavis and Nora Jones were playing in Nashville I think. I there was one of the shows that was coming to Nashville that I was you know wanting to see. So it was a kind of a big big letdown even you know even for the the viewers. So
1: Yeah, and, and just I don't know. I mean just trying to distill it down into as few words as possible and get on with things but but I got a little depressed, like most most musicians, I think. And and then finally just started really realize, picking up the guitar again and, and looking at some songs that I had finished and half finished and uh, decided, you know, there's only so much sulking and drinking and long hiking, long hikes you can go on before you finally start to realize, um, man, I got to get something done here. And, and we went in and recorded. This record and my daughters were a big part of kind of giving me the enthusiasm for it. and And my daughter Ellie um, painted um, a scene when she was a few years ago when she was twelve that ended up being the record cover. And my yeah. other daughter Lusa made the logo for the you know record company
0: because <laughs> mm-hmm. this is a self release. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's my first time doing that. It, it just seemed like the t- now's the time to do that. And yeah. um, I've been on labels, you know, Blacktop and Tone Cool and MC for 30 years. But um, now I'm an old guy and the <laughs> labels are like, you know, if you're not... Anyway, you know, I, th- I think yeah, the yeah. best no, thing we, best we, is to put it out yourself. <laughs> absolutely. So...
0: From listening to some of your past albums, this album uh, definitely has a, a, not that any of your albums are slick per se, but this one definitely has a rawness to it and an openness uh, because you've mo- most of the tracks seem to stick to a, a you know a trio format you know where it's you know kind of stripped down you know three instruments in your in your voice while you know some of your past albums you had you know looping or you had maybe even like Uh, you know, your last record, there's, you know, a little bit of overdubs and and such, you know, going on, but this is, you know, and also the, the topics, even like the titles of some of the songs, you know, there's just a, yeah, there's, there's a, there's a rawness, you know, Mm -hmm. to it, both in the, in the sound and uh, the, the playing Uh, it's, it's great. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, I guess that uh, there, was, there was a lot of raw feelings going on. <laughs> you know, what, what, what is it kind of the current circumstance that kind of pushed things in, in that d- raw direction than past albums and, the, of course, the topics?
1: Yeah, I guess so. And, you know, some of, the re- some of the songs have been written over the last couple of years, you know, on planes and in hotel rooms and whatnot. Yeah. So there were pre-pandemic. Uh, but I started to notice like a theme in some of the newer ones I was writing and just imagining some characters or a character down on his or her luck, um, kind of losing their minds, losing their their homes, losing their jobs and yeah. trying to find their way back. And I, I think all of us can relate to that now. And then musically, I've been doing a trio for so long. Um, and like you said some of my earlier records had piano or organ or horns or loops and you know we, we definitely got into that world um, after we did a record with R.O. Burnside a few years ago where we started getting into the like hip-hop production techniques and juxtaposing those with roots and blues but this was just Let's get the three of us together. We're, cor- you know, we're wearing masks all the time. You know, yeah. anyway, so we can't bring a bunch of people in, even during playbacks. You know, we were keeping our distance and putting masks on as soon as we went in to hear the playback. So, so it just seemed like I, I love trios, and and I didn't always, I didn't used to always years ago. I used to not like them, but I've grown accustomed to the space, and it there's just something beautiful when you get three people that really know how to and love playing together. And so I really wanted to bring that out. And so, you know, there'd be during playback, someone in the band or an engineer might say, oh, man, I, Rick, I really, I think I hear Whirly on here. or I think right. horn would be great here. And I go, no doubt they would. But, you know, I just sort of keep my mouth shut. And,
0: yeah. you know. I, uh, I love the Sonics of the album. I love uh, I love the the trio format because when you hear the guitar, you can really hear the the notes bloom. You can hear the decay of it. You can hear the splash of the verb. When you hear the snare hit, you know you can really hear the snare because there's the space for that because you don't have all this other junk going on. I, I, junk's a harsh word, but yeah, it's just it's it's really it's it's great. So I, I really enjoyed listening to the album and just to kind of hit on what I had said earlier, you know, some of these, these titles like losing, losing my shit or, you know, or, or, uh, you know, I'm an asshole, I mean, those you know, and they're, they're great, great tunes, but also there's the more of the hopeful stuff, like the current single, uh, you know, take my hand. And, uh, I really loved, uh, you know, lonesome sound. It almost had kind of like a Delmore brothers, uh, like blues stay away from me or something like that kind of vibe. And, uh, Oh and, and Joyful Eye that uh that's a a cool kind of more I guess more of the the, the most R&B tune of the of the bunch it oh yeah so
1: yeah yeah I think you you hit it right you hit it spot on right there I mean like Joyful Eye it's the last song on the record and and I just remember a few years ago my daughter my youngest daughter was real small at the time and I was racing around on a sunday night we used to have a gig at a place called the liquid kitty. And it was kind of a regular gig that we would play. And a lot of times we'd be flying back that afternoon from somewhere with Mavis and, and have a kitty gig that night. And, you know, so you, you're trying to get your set list ready and all your gear ready. You know how it is when you're ready for a gig, a little stressed out, got a bunch of friends coming down. Um, And my daughter, she was very small and she said, you know, daddy, look, what, what's, what's that? What see that light? And I, yeah, I look at, you know, it's a star or something. And what's its name? I don't know, honey. I, I maybe it's, well, how do you know? And she started asking me all these questions and as I'm putting my gear in the car, I started humming a lyric and that night late in the night, like probably the last song of the night. Uh, maybe I'd had a, uh, a vodka or something, it you know, and so I loosened up a little bit, and I played it, and and really all it was was like a, a verse and a chorus, yeah. And bass player, drummer, like, what is that? That's cool. What was that? I said, I don't know. It just, you know, I it just happened tonight. So and and that was kind of like it was just a one in a batch of songs that we recorded, and then as I started look you know you start looking at what all these things mean and pretty soon it seemed like that's the that's the thing, the joyful thing. The and it contains see that light, you know, the the name of the record. And anyway, so that's the story of that. So
0: yeah, I, I I like the the you know the the realism. You know it's it's not just like you know there's there's hopefulness there there's realness there. It's, yeah. it's a, it's a great, you know, mix of tunes.
1: Well, it's what? just, it's just one, it's two chords. It's C A minor for the whole song. Yeah. And I, so I could easily describe it to somebody or anybody that was sitting in on trumpet or saxophone or anything like that. And it would be something different every night. And I I started to really like that, that thing about it. And it's kind of guitar wise. It's sort of like, like you say, it's, it, I'm thinking sort of Curtis Mayfield mixed with pops on that on that. But then once I go off into guitar solo world, it starts to morph into like some sort of like Neil Young-ish territory. It's just, you yeah. know, it was a fun one.
0: Let's let's talk about some of the, uh, what were some of the gear that you used on the album? Like on, on Joyful Eye, it sounds like a telly, but I mean, might not be. What was, what was, uh, when guitar, yeah, it's on. My,
1: that's my old telly, the 53. Um, and the amp was a little Valco, uh, called uh, it's made by Valco, but it's a Bronson, it's called the Bronson Singing Electric, and it's just one of those little Valco kind of early 50s octal preamp tubes, two six V6s, like a Tweed Deluxe or a Tweed Princeton. It's got a tin. Yeah. yeah. And I, I on everything I used my old Fender reverb outboard reverb unit, and I used uh, a tube echo unit called an Echo Drive by this guy, this company called SIB. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was this big, it's not even a pedal; it's more like an actual echo unit, but there's no tape in it.
0: Right, you know? and it's got a, a hardwired AC cable on it.
1: Yeah, I hate. I, remember, yeah. I love hardwired stuff. I I. And so that rig to me, like the, the SIB echo drive and the reverb tank into a cool amp with tremolo does it for me.
0: Very nice. So, um, so the Valko, what other amps were used on the album?
1: I used on Losing My Shit, I used a reissue Vox AC-15, which was at the studio. Uh, and it's my favorite amp to use I'd say like 90% of our gigs with Mavis are fly-ins where we have to use backline rented stuff and that right. amp is has great tremolo it has a master volume that actually works it's 112 we don't play very loud so you know my stage volume is is probably comparable to like if you had a Princeton reverb on four
0: you know. yeah that's very reasonable volume yeah
1: yeah uh, let's see all right i also i used a, a tweed deluxe on a few tracks too
0: okay and what other guitars were on there besides the telly
1: the telly's on 8 of 12 and the, i have a 55 les paul special that was on four tracks and that's the only guitars i use on the whole record
0: wow you used to be kind of a harmony uh stratotone guy, and then you've you've kind of have you kind of pulled back from from playing that guitar some? cause it seemed like you kind of went from that to the telly thing and which that I old, love tellies, but yeah
1: that old peanut harmony Stratotone is happens to be sitting right over there okay. well yeah but, what but uh,
2: yeah,
1: yeah, it it uh I love that guitar it 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 has like the best sounding neck pickup of any guitar I have but um, the Telecaster, when you're flying in, like the thing about the Tele is, and you know because you're a Tele guy, is let's say I've got a flight at 12 noon leaving LAX, and it's 10 a.m., and I've got an Uber coming in five minutes, and I'm looking there, I'm looking, ah. and I've got these cool other guitars. But in the end, I almost always grab that thing because I know the – I can just get everything I need on it.
0: Yeah, you know?
1: Other guitars might have something that's cool about them, but then they're harder to play in certain areas or they're limited in certain ways. And then the telly, I mean the best story I can tell you about a telly for me was we, we were landing in New Orleans to go play Jazz Fest, the last time we played Jazz Fest. I had my 53 telly in the overhead above, above me. <laughs> Boom. We hit the runway. The the overhead compartment opens up. My telly flies out, hits a woman on the head, hits another guy across the aisle on the shoulder and plops down right in the middle of the aisle. (laughs) And I'm mortified. You know, I'm like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Are you okay? She's like, oh, yes, I'm okay. She's looking at me like this. And the other guy's looking at me like, God. Then the lady... Got hit in the head. Looks down and sees my Mavis Staples laminate on my guitar, and she says, "Why are you coming to New Orleans?" I said, "Or who do you do you play with?" I forgot what she said. Turned out, she and her husband were coming to New Orleans to go to Jazz Fest to see Mavis mainly. That was their main person wow. they were coming. to so after all that, you know, I saw her at baggage claim. I apologize. I asked her if I could get her on the, on, you know, do anything. She said, like, no, we've got tickets. We're all set. Thank you very much. I take it back to the hotel room. Of course. What? What do you think? It's, it's fine. Still, it's still in tune. Yeah. It's in tune. I put it on a tuner. The damn guitar is in tune.
0: <laughs> there you go. Especially the old ones. The old ones, it's like, it's like fossilized wood. And those, you know, those old necks and bodies, especially from the fifties, it's like, they don't move.
1: They don't. And you can go like Edmonton, Alberta in the winter and all the heaters are on and it's dry as hell. Yep. And same thing. You come back down to, you know, New Orleans and it's humid and, you know, there's like a tiny adjustment period. Oh, I got, I'm a, I'm a quarter step off on the tuner, you know? Yeah. They're, they're great. So let's uh,
0: before we get into you know like Gearland, we, we've got to go into into you know, talking about Mavis. So first off, how you know just how did you get the gig playing with Mavis?
1: Well, I I, I recorded for a label called Tone Cool Records out of Boston uh, in when I was with Rod Piazza and and a couple of my own solo records and one of the guys who ran. Tone calls cool is this guy named Dave Bartlett and he left the label world probably just at the right time and went into management and uh, this guy named Mike Kappas who used to book and manage a lot of blues artists and the Staple Singers and Mavis um, suggested that Dave Bartlett start managing Mavis like she needed some help in management world and Dave I, of course, knew him from Tone Cool, and he thought that we would make a good pair. He wasn't crazy about her band at the time and mentioned to me that he would like to pair us up. I, just, I said, sure, you know, I'm a huge Staple Singers fan. I'm, are you kidding me? That would be great. But I don't want to know anything about it until it, it happens because yeah. I know these things. It, it's, if, it, it means somebody else losing their gig. So if that works out, great. So they had me play the Handy Awards, which are now called the Blues Music Awards, with her in, I think it was 2005. Two songs, just the two of us, in front of a big room full of blues people. And that went well. And then later they had my band open for Mavis on the Santa Monica Pier. That was 2006. And that's a free Thursday night concert series that, Is on the pier. It's thousands of people show up. And, you know, we're, it's a crazy story. We're doing like our little 45-minute set opening for Mavis. And I, you know, I get, I think I'm done. And I look over and I see the promoter going, keep going, keep going. And so we played another two or three songs. I look over, keep going. I'm thinking, oh, man. These people want, I'll take you there. Respect yourself. You know, the weight. finally the promoter we probably played at least an hour and the maybe more and the promoter signals me down and tells me that her band flew in the day of the gig and they're stuck at LAX on the tarmac they can't get to baggage claim or something and would could we back Mavis up until they got there and so I went back and talked to Mavis and I said can uh, can we can, can we do some blues she said I don't sing no blues and I'm thinking to myself the hell you don't you just don't <laughs> realize that you don't <laughs> right but, you do. but um so we ended up getting up there and playing three or four songs like um Freedom Highway I played it way too fast because I'm all jacked up uh, played the weight. I couldn't remember the second chord of the progression all the mm-hmm. way through the weight, the the minor third, three right. chord, you know, so I slurred through that for four minutes, you know, of like one, uh, four, <laughs> fill. <laughs> it's yeah. And, you know, it was just not, it was okay, but it wasn't up to anybody's standards, but we, we, you know, we helped her get through a tough moment. And while it was happening, there was this guy down the steps of the stage. It was one of those outdoor stages. And this guy, these big yellow glasses and kind of a wild outfit was looking up at me and saying, Rick, yeah, man. And I'm looking at this guy thinking, who is this oddball, you know, while we're playing. So once her band showed up, we literally handed them cables and drumsticks, and they finished the set. And I walk down the steps, and this guy taps me on the shoulder, and it's Rye Cooter. Oh my goodness! So, so Bry was producing a Mavis record at the time. That's why Mavis was already in town, yeah. and her band just flew in. That was a fatal mistake. They flew in, tried to, you know, yeah. You don't do in. that. Don't do that. We learned our lesson real quick on that. And I guess what I heard later was that Rye was talking us up the next week in the studio, saying, "I really like that band that didn't even know your stuff but played with you," and so that kind of knocked us over the, you no, know, it kind of got us over the hump as far as playing with Mavis.
0: Wow, that that that's amazing. I mean, did you you got you had a plug from Rye Cooter is pushing. Mavis to use y'all as band. And by the way, that Mavis album that Rye produced is a killer album. It's kind of a, a bit of a protest r- r- album, which is, you know, very, you know, uh, very like, you know, Mavis to do. And it's a that's a killer, killer record that they did together.
1: It is. And that's when we started was when that record came out. They knew that Rye and Keltner weren't going to go out and tour that record. So they hired me to basically put a band together. So I t- grabbed the guys that were in my band and then I grabbed some background singers and we got together with Mavis. And, and the cool th- other th- thing about that story was, I mean, how many guitar players have that daydream of like, I'm gonna be playing somewhere and so-and-so is gonna walk in and dig what I'm doing, right? Right. <laughs> it right. happened. Recruiter. yeah. And th- not only did it happen, but he kept coming, like when the- Mavis's band was finishing the set, Rye came up, and again, stood right next to me and goes, so what do you got? What are you running up there? What do you got going? <laughs> and, uh, you know, because the guy, the guy in Mavis's band was playing through my rig at the time. I, I looked at him, I said, it's a Tweed Deluxe with a line out into a bigger Fender amp. It was a super reverb. And I said, Rye, I got the idea from you. I mean, that's something that you used to do and I read about it in, a, you know, a guitar player article. And he he's looking and he goes, yeah, that's right. I used to do that. <laughs> like, talk about full circle. Like, man. Yeah. I learned this from you. <laughs> and you're asking me about it. <laughs> his, his whole thing was like, like you got to be in your world. You got to be in your space. So find what your favorite space is and then blow it up to stage level volume and headroom. I learned that from him.
0: Wow. So one of the great things about you joining up with, with Mavis's band was it was uh, a more of a return to the old school, you know, Staples, you know, sound, you know, kind of like the VJ records and stuff where it was more stripped down, where it was like you really heard Pop's, you know tremolo guitar and you heard you know Mm. and it was more about the vocals and the guitar and then you know and sometimes on those old records there there might be some drums or there might be a little bit of organ like on the 25th day of December the Christmas album that has a little bit of organ on it and stuff but there's just huge difference between like the old you know Staples you know sound and then you know of course what most people know them for which is the the later Stack stuff that was cut like in Muscle Shoals and and such, which are great, but it's a completely different thing. And yeah. So it was nice to see Mavis kind of return to that older sound.
1: Well, um, I appreciate you noticing that. That's cool to hear. Um, I, I think when I was, okay, so I used to play with this guy, Rod Piazza, this yeah. harmon- blues harmonica player, singer guy. I remember we were in Santa Cruz playing the blues festival up there. And I played something in the set that had tremolo. It was kind of like a Magic Sam type of song that we had. And this guy named Charlie Lang, who runs a, a music store called Blue Beat Music up in Santa Cruz. And he, he, he says to me after the set, man, he sounded a little bit like Pop Staples on that one song with the tremolo. And, and I, I'm ashamed to admit, admit that uh, you know, at 30 years of age, I think I was about 30, I turned to Charlie and said, well, I've heard of the Staple Singers, but I'm not really familiar with that. Yeah, and and he made me a cassette tape of all the cool VJ stuff, mm-hmm. and I used to drive around in my, you know, after after gigs, drive. You know how you're driving home at two or three in the morning, like a two-hour drive from somewhere, mm-hmm. trying to stay awake, and that Staple Singer stuff was the perfect stuff, like "Uncloudy Day" and "This May Be the Last Time" and all those songs. Sit down servant. And it really spoke to me. And then when we got the gig with Mavis, you know, I remember saying to Dave, her manager, like, I would really like to keep this stripped down. I really don't want to put a keyboard in. I don't want horns. You know, can we strip it down? And he was all in favor of it, you know, for musical reasons and for economic reasons, obviously. And and it fit with the record that Rye had made that we were coming in to tour on, and i I'm like I remember the first time we went to to New Orleans to play Jazz Fest, not long after that record came out. The stage manager had a 3 and a and a Leslie up on stage and a piano, and he kept and I kept saying, you know, we have like twenty minute changeovers sometimes on those festivals, and we don't travel with, you know, it was just the band. And Mavis, I said, get that off of there. Are you sure we've got you know John Cleary's here? We've got all the. I know they're great. I but get it off the stage. That's not what we do. Are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm a band (laughs) leader. Get it the hell off the stage. And you know, we had a few run-throughs early on where people were, were um, you know, hey, it's a little thin or it's a little empty. That's the point. We want people to hear the space. We want people to hear the vocals. We want to hear the vocal blends. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So thank you for explaining that because I was just wondering, you know, how much of that was a conscious decision on your part to say, Hey, I want to pull it back to this more stripped down, you know, sound and kind of, you know, harken back to that because it's, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it definitely was. And, and then, Then we went and proceeded to spend probably the first year blasting our brains out, playing too loud and too fast when we first got with her. I mean, not every night, but like our first gig, our first gig was The Tonight Show. We were supposed to have a couple of warm-up gigs before that, and Mavis got a cold and we had to cancel them. And so, boom, we went right on Jay Leno's show (laughs) and played the song that we were, you know, Eyes on the prize. We played it too fast and too amped up. It had a lot of punk kind of rock energy about it, but yeah. it it took us a while to kind of figure out. Okay, we 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 adopted this mantra of embrace the space and you know kind of let the microphones do the work. Let the let the sing. Let the notes decay. And and you know, like I can play a little figure. Uh, in between the vocal in the second verse and then not do it in the third verse and let and, and it's already stuck in people's minds whether they know it or not and if i don't play it again it might be more effective than if i play it you know so yeah, it, yeah. so
0: tell me what what kind of input you know how does how does mavis you know kind of i mean you're the band leader But what type of input does Mavis give you, you know, is she, you know, volume tempo? I mean, you know, what kind of input does she give you?
1: Um, It's all about the groove and the the vibe and the feeling with Mavis. Like, like when we're rehearsing, you know, that's when like maybe at the beginning of the year and we're, we just finished a record and we have to go and relearn our record and get ready to tour. We'll have maybe, Three days of rehearsal, and um, that's when she might say, "Like that's a little too fast, I think," or "Let's let's try a different key, let's lower this," or but but very little. I mean, she because she had pops all the you know her, most of her professional life, she had somebody that would instinctively know how fast to play a song and where to put it to feature her voice key wise and stuff like that. And that's what we've tried to provide for her. But I mean, we've had shows, Zach, where we really played well and we re, nobody made a mistake. And I talked to Mavis after the show and she's just like, yeah, that was good, it was, was good. And then we have shows where <laughs> it's just a nightmare and it's like, People are forgetting verses, and there's all kinds of mental things going on. And Mavis would be like, "Spicy show, Rick. That, that was good. That was a good one." You know, because she had fun that night. You know, <laughs> it's all about fun. So it's definitely not. I mean, she has not ever once said, "Rick, you know, put that tremolo on, Rick." She's never asked me to do anything like that. It's more like. Uh, it was the, the drums were getting a little loud tonight. Or that bass or the, your guitar was a little loud. You know, different theaters are different. You'd, sometimes you don't even realize it. You know, it can be different on one stage where you're standing. Yeah. She's more, she'll, she'll comment about that or the tempo of a song being too fast so that she can't sing comfortably.
0: Right. Can't, can't spit the words out. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about, you know, from working with her from thir- for 13 years now, what mm. have you uh, observed and learned from her? You know, because, I mean, she's been performing since she was a kid. And here she is, she's 80, 81?
1: 81, yeah. yeah. Man, I don't even know where to start on that. Um, uh, so many things. I mean, she she never phones in a gig, mm-hmm. you know, even when she's really tired or it's really hot. Like we played that, uh, we played a really fun festival. I think last summer, it was uh, Jason, uh, Jason Isbell's and, and David Hood's festival in Muscle Shoals. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, so it was David Hood and some, and, and he you know, the amazing bass player that played at Muscle Shoals he was there playing uh Cheryl Crow and her band were playing Jason Isbell was playing we were playing I, I I forget who else and it was hot and we had that that like last part of the afternoon slot and sun was baking and you know she can come out nights like that or days like that and at first she's sluggish and you know she'll she'll look at me like she's about to faint or something and I'll grab her arm hey okay you know you need to sit down for a minute but pretty soon she finds something. It's like she, she'll look around in the audience. She'll find some reason to, to get back up there and and do it. And it's really inspiring. I mean, it's so easy to just be like, oh, man, okay, well, oh, this is tough, and, and let that color the way you play. But she doesn't do that. Um, another thing I've noticed from her is that moats are not good, like that distance in between the band and the audience. And we always know when there's a moat, it could be a tough day because she draws on the energy of the crowd being right up on her, uh, which is going to be interesting now come, you know, post-plague, how yeah. that's going to work. Um, I don't know, so many things. I mean, it, just feeling, vibe, um, and given it, you're all no half stepping, you know. But, but never, it's never a question of technical uh, perfection or she's never into, into like, oh, I made all my marks tonight. She much yeah. rather have a show where it was spotty but spirited, you know.
0: How did uh, playing with her? how you know from going from doing your your own thing and then joining up with her how did that change your guitar playing or how did you have to change your guitar playing for this gig playing with her
1: it really did cuz i came from <clears throat> like a the world of the west coast world of traditional blues um which was you know it's kind of like the the elevator uh, pitch on that would be it's it's somewhere in between 50s T-Bone Walker, all the way up to about the day that Magic Sam died in probably I don't know when that was, 68 or 60? 60, no, 69 I think. And nothing later than that. Yeah. Maybe stuff, maybe stuff that's uh, definitely stuff that's earlier than that. But it's it's just all that like hollow body um, uh, Chicago blues that moved to the West Coast, Texas blues that moved to the West Coast. Big Joe Turner, T-Bone Walker, you know, Lowell Folsom, George Harmonica Smith, Little Walter, all that, meshing all that together. So uh, I played with, you know, a whole bunch of people that did that. And what I learned when I started playing with Mavis, there's this guy I used to back up named Johnny Dyer, who was from Clarksdale, Mississippi, same age as Mavis. He's passed now, but we made a couple of records for the blacktop label. And I really noticed when I started playing with Mavis that it was very similar to playing with Johnny, the vocal phrasing, the timing, the inflections. And so Johnny Dyer came coming from Clarksdale area, Mavis's family family coming from that same area, era area, and era. Um, so people would say, oh, uh, like I can't believe you're doing this. It's such a change. It's like yeah, well, you know, it went from twelve bar blues to being you know some songs are twelve bar blues, some songs are two chords, some of them are one chord, or or we're throwing an, a relative minor, or it's it's just a little bit of a harmonic change, but feeling and vibe wise, it's very much like backing up a blues singer. And yeah. I get what did I learn? I guess you know, you go from playing the blues club world and blues festival world where you kind of, especially if you're playing old style, traditional blues, you kind of had to knock them over the head to get over in that world. Because if you're on a festival and you're playing that type of, you know, hollow body, little Tweed amp, 50s blues stuff, and then right after you is like, um, you know, a Zydeco band that's rocking. And then after that is like, uh, you know, Coco Montoya, who's playing like kind of like more like rock blues, really good at what he does, but it's a different thing. Then you're going to seem like this little polite history lesson that they put on early in the day. And we never wanted that. So what I learned playing in that blues world is to play loud, strong, and confidently. And then all of a sudden I go to Mavis world and it's like, okay, dial all that back a few notches, play less, play quieter, listen more to Pops and Curtis Mayfield and, and uh, Bobby Womack and Reggie Young and, and Eddie Hinton and all those type of players, less is more. So, you know, that would probably be the main thing.
0: Yeah. You mentioned Pops. Let's, uh, because again, a lot of people aren't, aren't really aware, people need to listen to the earlier Staples, you know, singers, you know, such and, and, you know, stuff and they need to hear, you know, pops, but how would you describe pops, you know, guitar style?
1: Well, I mean, to me, it's totally coming from the Delta and you can, you know, you can hear all those Sunhouse or Charlie Patton, um, it, uh, influences in his playing, but interestingly enough, there's also this side of it that isn't that different than people like, um, <clears throat> um, you know, the dude that played with uh, Elvis early. Why is his name Scotty Moore? Scotty, yeah. Jeez, <laughs> uh, it's that you know, it's 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 the like Cropper told me, like Pops, man, he had that E chord, just that E chord. You know, he would play that cowboy E chord and then all those little melodies that he would put in and patterns that he would play. To me, it's a really similar kind of thing to like early blues and early rockabilly guitar playing. And, you know, I'm not a student of rockabilly, obviously, if I couldn't think of Scotty Moore's name, but there's a lot of similarities in it. It's just just that down-home front porch, you know, Mississippi...
0: Yeah, but who, who knows what, you know, that Scotty Moore wasn't hearing that. <laughs> and he wasn't hearing those, those Delta blues, you know, players and such and 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 taking that and combining it with the influence of hearing Django Reinhardt and Les Paul and Chet Atkins. And you start, yeah. you know, mixing the, uh, yeah, you get all yeah. sort of an interesting gumbo. So, yeah.
1: Yeah. And then I, my, my theory on, on the tremolo, I could be wrong on this, but I have this theory is that, Guitars in that day were frowned upon in the church, and the staple singers obviously started off as a gospel group. And you know, they were more used to having pianos and organs and as the accompaniment. So, Pops sticks on this tremolo and kind of makes it a little bit more organy sounding. But you know, I don't know, they didn't have very many, they didn't have any effects back then. It was just tremolo and that may have been it. But I, I, I swear there's something going on there that's kind of organ and Wurlitzer-esque in Pops' playing. And it gives a swirl and a motion to, you know, because the early staple singers, like you said, were just Pops's guitar and their voices. Yeah. It wasn't later that you might have like Phil Upchurch playing some bass and, and Al Duncan playing some drums. But that was rare. Like that, that didn't happen very often.
0: Yeah, just just and the vibe that he gives off when he just plays an E chord and, and hits one string at a time and with the tremolo going. It's mm-hmm. just it feels like you've yeah. you've entered something new.
1: I mean, you talk about things that, that what have I learned? I mean, from pops, all that stuff when you first hear it sounds simple. Like you go, you hear it and you go, oh yeah, you put some tremolo on and you play that. Oh yeah, that's a six and a, a five and then he, he hammers on this. But what you really get is like, I've been doing it for 13 years and when we go and learn a song with Mavis, especially if it's one of those songs, I always go back and really try to get it. But man, it's almost like people that tell you, oh man, yeah, I, I play just like I can play that Jimmy Reed shit. I I know it cold, you know. I mean, there's rarely anyone that ever really figures the intricacies of that stuff out.
0: Yeah, it it just proves that they don't really know it or they don't really respect it. Because if you respect it, then you're in, you're awed by it and you're trying to absorb it and you're trying to get you know better at it instead of thinking I've mastered it.
1: Yeah, often imitated, never duplicated. Yeah. Come. It's like, and it's almost pointless in a way, but to, to, to get too far into it. But I do, I do, I have spent my time trying to learn it so that I can cop that feeling when it's needed somewhere in the show. But like I said about Mavis, she's never asked me, like a lot of times I'll, I'll hear something that pops used to do with tremolo and I'll say, I'm going to, I'm going to do something. I'm going to do something different. And then sooner or later, I start going, eh, Pops knew what he was doing. You know, this song sounds better in his approach. Let me go back and relearn the way he, it should be.
0: Yeah. So for you, in when you're duplicating or, you know, kind of paying homage to uh, to Pops, what would you use, you know, gear-wise to get closest to it?
1: Oh, well, um, uh, a telly. Or any kind of Fender guitar, really. Any, actually, any guitar it is, I mean, he played that big old K archtop with a floating diarmid at one point. He played a gold top Les Paul. Mm-hmm. There's pictures of him. It doesn't matter really. It's mostly yeah. bridge pickup. <clears throat> Either I don't use uh, finger picks. But, I mean, you know, the kind that you slide on. Um, but some sort of finger picking and tremolo. I like bias tremolo you know but also the kind on the white amps the harmonic that more complex tremolo really Mm -hmm. gets it i find that the blackface type tremolo can get it but it's a little it's not quite right so that's you know that's one of the reasons why i really like those new vox ac15 reissue amps when we fly in they have that bias tremolo which is like a princeton reverb or Mm -hmm. You know an old tweed tremolux it just has that that gooey chewy thing about it. It's not on off on off it's like ugh. yeah because it's yeah it's because
0: it's the bias instead of the op uh opto isolator whatever that is that's yeah that's
1: yeah, like it's, a little light bulb that's basically exactly. turning the sound off and off. I mean I really i you have a great couple deluxe reverbs I've seen from your videos yeah. and i I'm sure I could do. I'm sure those amps would do it, but it's like these reissue amps a lot of times, like
0: uh, it doesn't
1: quite get it
0: yeah you know? and and the bias tremolo is just it's just much cooler, so yeah, it's really musical yeah so so let's just drill down so when you're when you're touring with when you're touring with mavis you've you've probably got one telly, so why don't why don't you uh let's let's go ahead and grab your fifty three telly okay.
1: Should I plug it in as well?
0: Sure. Never
1: hurts.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what amp are you plugged into today?
1: That is a little uh, Vero 20th Century Limited, it's called. It's a friend of mine uh, named Steve Fazio makes these amps out of Joliet, Illinois. It's a little 112 with reverb and tremolo it's kind of like somewhere in between a Princeton and a deluxe reverb Mm -hmm. but he really designed it to sound more like the old like late 40s early 50s Gibson amps so it's a little on the darker side and I like to use it to practice around the house and stuff.
0: So of course, right now we can't see the the Telecaster at all. We just we just see your face. So so hold up the the Telecaster you know up so we can we can kind of see it. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's got nice neck wear on it. So uh, so that's your main that's the main guitar that you tour with. So you you carry that thing around with you all the time.
1: I've had it now for four years. I was very lucky to get it. Had some some issues that scared away money, so I was able to sell a whole bunch of guitars and amps and effects and stuff and and pick it up. And I b- bring it in the States um, when I know that I, we're flying in with a gig bag and I can keep my eye on it all the time. But yeah. If I am on to Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Europe, I have a 64, a white 64 reissue, kind of looks like Cropper's guitar. Yep. And, I, and when I know I have to check the guitar I'll I'll bring that in, a, in one of those SKB rolling cases. Mm-hmm. Me and the bass player will both put, he'll put a bass in and I'll put a guitar in and we check that. And then when we get to the hotel, we, you know, leave the case in one of our rooms and carry around our gig bags. Perfect. So, yeah. What, uh, what strings do you use on it? 11 to 50 Dunlop 11 to 50 feels pretty good to me. I used to, play uh boy you know when I was in my hollow body days I used 12 I even went through a period of using 13s for a while and you know trying to get the big string tone and that was all great until uh you know I was up in Canada I think I was in Edmonton in the winter and my hand just froze up on me one night like I, I literally felt my hand and wrist freeze up and yeah so I went back down to 12s and then back down to 11s. I've tried 10s and I just can't get on with them. I I don't, I'm not on 11s for any kind of macho reason, but yeah, I think I just learned how to play with that tension. You know, when you hit a string and it doesn't quite bounce quite as far. So I like these 11s and now I, I put them on all my guitars. Yeah. What kind of picks do you use? Uh, fender medium most of the time, um, and, but the pick with me is an odd thing because it almost doesn't matter as long as it has a little something that I can kind of feel like this. I love the the, the engraved feeling of the fender medium pick, mm-hmm. but it a lot of times it'll start off in normal picking position and then it just goes here. I don't even realize it's happening. And then after the show, you know, some people will come up and go, you don't use a pick, do you? I say, actually I do. It's just, it just goes there. And I don't even realize it's happening. Yeah. And, and it, I, I came, I remember when I was playing with William Clark, uh, we would play this gig at, in Redondo Beach at the Starboard Attitude, right on the beach, uh, three nights a week, like uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Long Nights, and all these blues characters would show up. All these, I shouldn't call them characters. They were great artists like Smokey Wilson, Finest Tazby, and Johnny Dyer, and Curtis Griffin, and Philip Walker, and it's just like the who's who of, of P- LA great singers and guitar players. And I would look at these guys and be on stage with them, watching them, and they're just You know, really plucking the strings with the flesh of their fingers, and then, man, that's the shit. I got to, I got to start doing that. And and eventually, I started noticing the difference between, you know, like when you pick a note and it sounds like, like, um, let's see, like, and then when you go with your fingers, it's like Hubert Sumlin kind of a thing, you know? Yeah. You no, you can hear that percussiveness about it. And then my pick goes like that. But I've got it in case I need to do some rhythm stuff or some fast, l- low-end picking, you know.
0: Yeah. So you got the telly and then, you, you know, you have to backline, you know, your gig. So, you know, the promoter provides a, a reissue AC-15. And what do you have in your, in your bag, you know, as far as effects? Or are you just using the amp?
1: Well, it's mostly the amp, but I... I uh, I hate pedals. I'm going to be flat out honest with you, but I use a couple. <laughs> yeah, I hate them, but I use a couple. All right. All right. I'll I'll what a, are they? I'll give you the whole run. Now. Like first, okay, the first maybe nine years with Mavis was a reissue deluxe reverb or twin reverb or super reverb or vibrolux reverb and me pulling my hair out. That's why I lost most of my hair, I think. It happens. Because I just couldn't get on with them. And so I I tried every kind of boost and overdrive pedal, compressor pedals, and I could just never get the sound. Uh, Even EQs trying to replace some of the frequencies that I was missing, it just never worked for me. Because I, I came up, Playing Tweed amps, Um, I'm used to that flatter EQ of the Tweed amps, the more mid-range. And I also love, you know, EL84 amps, boxes and things like that. So fast forward to a couple, three, four years ago, we're in Perth, Australia, and I'm about to go, you know, on stage and I'm looking at that, all those reissue Fender amps, (sighs) And then I see a Vox AC30 reissue. i look over look at it and see reverb, master volume, tremolo, speed, intensity. Hey, let me try that. And I loved it, you know, and then I've since sized it down. So for me, the thing about a Tele and and, uh, and uh, an amp, like either a Tweed amp or an EL84 amp that, that has a little bit more mid-range to it, just fits my style. So... Shit can, the, tr- the distortion pedals, didn't have to use them anymore. What I bring now is a uh, MXR reverb pedal because the reverb doesn't sound very good in those amps to me. Okay. Uh, I have a way of setting it to where it sounds like an outboard reverb tank. And then I, I have a boost pedal by a company called um, Catherine Effects and it's called an Icarus and it basically just hits the front end and it has a tone control. So you can suck a little bit of the high end off of the signal. And it and that just really works for me. Those two together and they sit on top of the amp. The only thing that's on the floor is the button to turn off the tremolo. Yeah. And
0: so those pedals stay on all the time and then you just turn the tremolo off and on.
1: Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there's, some,
0: there's something about when you have, when you have those, either the tweeds or the, you know, or the EL84 amps, that they don't have that that crazy low end that just kind of gets flubby and weird, so.
1: Yeah, and they don't have that scoop in the mids, and that's a beautiful sound when you're playing that thing. I love it, but I can't use it all night comfortably. I, I'm coming more from the, it's like Ry Cooter said one time, he goes, they asked him, what do you, what do, you do when you have to, go sit in uh, with John Lee Hooker somewhere at some club. And he, he says, invariably, they have one of those terrible super reverbs sitting there at the club. And I have to plug into that. And he goes, that I'm coming from the world of Big Joe Turner. And those amps are the world of the Beach Boys. and And that's my thinking too. But... You know, I know you're a the you know, blackface deluxe reverb guy, and I love them, and yeah. I've had them, and the original ones sound amazing, and you've got original ones. But when you're in my shoes, having to play a reissue every night with that terrible big Jensen speaker with the magnet that's about this big, yeah,
0: it's uh, the, 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 yeah, it's the C12K. It's a terrible. It's a hundred watt speaker with a big old magnet, and it sounds terrible. I will say my other favorite amp is a 59 harvard and I've, i yeah and it it i I've, I've become closer and closer to that so I, I i get it so and it's like sometimes it's hard going from the harvard to the even the old deluxe reverb because it has almost too much and you're like i want the guitar to be more in here you know i don't want it to be so wide
1: yeah yeah that's a good way of describing it yeah, yeah. so
0: okay so let so you have the 53 telly and uh, any interesting story, as far as you know how how you got it or anything any anything crazy
1: yeah i mean this, the whole story of this guitar is insane. Um, I saw an ad for it. It was up in ventura it 's about an hour and an hour or so drive up north up the coast for me. I saw it on Saturday, and Monday morning, I was at the guy 's house, and um, it has a big crack running from. I would say maybe like the um, 17th fret all the way to the end of the fingerboard, right in the middle of the neck. Not a big crack, but a crack. Yeah. That scared people away. The knobs were painted green. The pickups were original, but they were functioning funny. I brought my best telly at the time up there. The guy let me play it for about an hour and a half. (laughs) Uh, He had a Vibrolux reverb, an old Vibrolux reverb, just left me alone in the room. And he's listening to me play. He's like, who do you play with? And I said, a singer named Mavis Staples. Mavis Staples, from the Staples (laughs) singer. He was a fan. (laughs) So I had that in my favor. And, but as soon as I hit the first E chord, after playing my, I had a, some kind of a, I had a reissue, a custom shop reissue, which is a really good guitar. And then I played this one and it just, you just felt like the low end. Whoa. And I knew I had to get it. Um, I I don't want to go into, I I got really lucky on the price. I'll put it that way. And, and the other, the other part of, of the, of the thing is, is on my way to go see that guitar, I stopped at my bank and I withdrew the amount of money that the guy was asking for the guitar. And then I pulled off a certain, I I told the lady, give me two envelopes, one with this amount and one with that amount. So, you know, I had one, I had, I had a pocket full of uh, envelope of cash of what I wanted to spend. And I had the remainder in this other envelope Mm -hmm. and I get back in my car and I start driving up towards PCH to go North to, to head up to Ventura and I get rear ended a car bashes into the back of my 92 Volvo station wagon. And I was like, I get out, I look at the back of my car, not a scratch. And it was like a seventies GMC Jimmy that hit me like this big, like blazer size, which, which should have torn you up. Should have torn me up, but not a scratch on her car. She's sorry. Are you okay? Yeah. Okay. Can we just forget about this? I'm sorry. Yeah, sure. Let's go. So I'm driving up the coast. I've never spent, Anywhere close to the amount of money that I'm thinking about spending, and I just got yeah. in an accident, and I'm shaken. Yes. And um, anyway, so um, the guy told me that the guitar previously he he had bought it from a mariachi player, out in front of the Hollywood uh, Bowl, like 20. Yeah, that's yes, my so story. Yeah, I call it the mariachi, and uh, I was able to score, and then I got um, Ron Ellis. To rewind the neck pickup because it had issues. And then he he also rewound the bridge pickup. It was reading out really funny and kind of intermittent. Yeah. The neck pickup was um sounded amazing, but it was so microphonic that um you couldn't turn like a fender amp up to two and a half before it was squealing. Yeah. And
0: Ron's uh, amazing, yeah.
1: Yeah, but and then eventually, I, I also, I, what I have in the bridge now is a converted uh, early 50s lap steel pickup. Yeah. That I found on the road, I was at a shop, and I saw this thing, and oh I might as well give it a shot. And it's just got this little extra something special about it. So that's, that's what's in the bridge now. So do you have it where it's
0: mounted to the plate, or do you have it where it's mounted to the body? Because sometimes no, it, with those...
1: Plate, it was converted. Okay, okay, okay yeah and it's just got this thing it's I don't know it's it's got a special extra five percent that I, that I like in this guitar and then the neck pickup itself is kind of on the dark side um, like um, it's not the sparkliest neck pickup but it'll if you're careful with how loud you're playing and you pull the volume down and you pick just right um you can get it to be bright i think most people that pick up this guitar if they're telly guys would go "Ooh, that neck's kind of dark but then you put it in the middle to me the middle position when the neck is a little bit dark and the bridge is right has that you know like um It really yeah. has that chime that I like.
0: Yeah, when which the, is perfect it, for that R&B type, you know, Bobby Womack. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and then you you flick on the bridge, you know, that amp is barely on. You can hear that thing go. Yep. You know,
2: <laughs>
1: you know it's, 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 it works for me.
0: Yeah, that's great. Great guitar.
1: Yeah. Yeah, really lucked out. Every time I pull it out of the, the bag, um, I'm amazed that it's mine. And I call it the mariachi. It's got so much soul. Uh, the other thing that kind of scared people away, there was a story that the guy told me that I have no idea. But he, he said that the original owner supposedly took it to wood shop class in high school, like in the late 50s and decided that he wanted the body to match the color of the neck. So he supposedly stripped the body. And then we don't know if he then put on some clear lacquer or if that story is even true. Like I've taken yeah. it to people because it's been refretted a couple of times and it's needed a little TLC. And all of the guys that I've taken it to say, usually when a telly has been Refined, especially in the old days when people weren't careful, you can see the scratch marks on the string ferrules from the sandpaper, mm-hmm. and these are smooth as can be. And, and then other other people have looked at the finish and said, "That's original." I don't know what that's what that story is, but he had it in his description, and it scared people away, and right. so.
0: But yeah. you know, because because when you when you start talking about a a crack in the neck and a reef in the body, you're you know the collectors go, oh, that's a player's guitar. That's not a collector's
1: guitar. And, yeah, and the knobs were like bright green. And I mean, so, I, I had to paint. I had to scratch. I mean, I had to scrub these knobs for hours to get them to look right. I love it. All this wear mark and you know the 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 the, the little thing in the neck and. Uh, The nut was really funky, so I had to get a new nut made when I had it refretted. But it's just, you know, it it, it's perfect. The neck shape is, it's got a little bit of a V. It's got a lot of meat, but it's not huge. You know,
0: perfect. Great, great guitar, great story. Uh, What else do you have to show us?
1: Oh boy, let's see. Okay, I'm gonna start grabbing stuff here. Hold on a minute. This is an old Harmony archtop from the uh, early to mid fifties. Um, Lift it up where we can see the, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now These kind of guitars, I was playing when I first got on the blues scene when I was in my early 20s. And the real reason why I got into these guitars was Junior Watson.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: He's a great blues guitar player still around, playing his ass off as always. Um, he was in a band called Rod Piazza and the Mighty Flyers that I saw in 1987. And then uh, like eight, eight years later, I was in that band. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, which is an amazing story in itself, but they're, they're, they're inexpensive arch tops with these kind of prehistoric P90s called P13s. Um, This I've had black ones. I've had blonde ones. I've had sunburst ones. This started off as a sunburst one. I always loved the look of the blonde harmony arch tops, but, what I discovered after owning a few of them, thank you Junior Watson for hipping me finally, was that the necks on those are maple and the necks on the ones that I really like are a softer wood. I don't know if it's poplar or what it is, it might be poplar, but it just has a softer sound to it. And it's it's a perfect sound for like the like backing up a harmonica in that 50s like of thing and especially when you amp it up with a amp that's breaking up Mm -hmm. create it helps create this sound that doesn't have any harsh edges on it. it it lays this this warm kind of creamy underbelly for the harmonica or the singer to float over top of and i i put a somewhere in here let's see how did i do this on this one Oh, there's an out of phase uh, push pull.
0: <laughs> For a T bone kind of effect.
1: Kind of That's a thing. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. And you get on the bridge pickup, and it's. Like B.B. King, early 50s B.B. King type stuff. Yeah. So great, lightweight guitar. You know, um, plywood top, um, nice neck shape. I use this guitar a lot. It's on the cover of my hydraulic groove record. And I've even toured with it back then when we were when we were doing all that loops and stuff. Um, this guitar was great for for that because it was... It was just this weird juxtaposition, like the we were out there playing. The drummer was triggering loops, and I'm playing this big hollow body guitar. Yeah, it's fun. Um, okay, you want another one? Yeah. Okay. Well, you have or, to
0: pull out the have, harmony. You know, you, you know, if you, I'm sure you have the stratitone there.
1: Yeah. Let me. Uh, you want that next? It doesn't
0: matter. You, 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 you do it. Do it in whatever order you want. Okay. Here we go.
1: Uh, this next one, I just got this guitar back a couple of days ago. This is a Dan Electro DC two pickup model from 1959, and I had I bought this guitar 30 years ago. It had one pickup, and I had Steve Sos put a second pickup in it. Yeah. It was- Steve is like the expert of all things Dan Electro and, um, and uh, I, I used this guitar uh, on Billy Boy Arnold's comeback record on Alligator Records. I used it on the first two Johnny Dyer records all over my first record and Rod Piazza stuff. Um, it was like the guitar that I used to bring up when I would bring the harmony, I'd bring this as like my Stun guitar. Yeah. Like end of the night, you gotta play something that's that's uh more like a fendery kind of sounding thing. Uh, and um and I, anyway, I in a moment of weakness I traded it to a friend in Alaska uh for a for a guitar that didn't even last for a Jerry Jones guitar. And those are really good guitars, but it just didn't have the, the personality I have. I think I kept that guitar for a couple of months and got rid of it, and I've been trying to get this back. And last week it came, FedEx delivered it. And well,
0: congratulations on! Get, yeah, it's always there's it's sweet when you get that guitar back that you're like, why did I sell it?
1: Yeah, my friend Curtis Cunningham just wasn't using it very much, and he was very cool to, to you know, get it back to me. So, um, you know. There's the neck in this, this one's got a bridge pickup. You know, it's just really yeah. it's just a strong bridge pickup for a Dan Electro. These are this, this uh, they're really weak pickups like yeah. ohm wise, but they just have this certain high end magic about them. And oddly enough, Right now, this usually these, these two guitar down electrodes are wired in series in the middle. So then right. they, they sum up together to be almost like a little humbucker. But for some reason, this switch has been changed, which I don't even remember when it was hap- it happened, but I need to switch this back because it's in parallel now. And so the middle position, it's okay, but it's... it's yeah, anyway.
0: part of the sound on those is having them in series in the in the in the middle position, so you get that louder,
1: fatter sound. Yeah. Totally, yeah. And then you can blend them with. They have these concentric knobs that have volume and tone on each stack. Yep. And you can find these blends, and the guy that really got me going on Dan Electro's was this guy named Steve Samuels. I don't yeah. know if you know about Steve Samuels. I don't. If your viewers, if you, it'll blow your mind. It. Uh, YouTube Steve Samuels guitar because there's some other guy named Steve Samuels. Um, and Steve uh was born, he's one of those, um, he, as a baby, he was his what is that drug? Thalidomide, Ph- how do you say that? Yeah,
0: I can't remember the name, I know what you're talking about. Yes, the one that would, that would cause some abnormal, you know, yeah,
1: yeah, and, and mom probably had to take that for whatever reason, and anyway, so he was. Born where he didn't have a lower arm. His arm ended right here, right at the elbow right. joint. And he had a little nub there. Yeah. He played left-handed on a right, regular right-handed guitar, and he picked with that nub like this. Yeah. And he used a three-pickup Dan Electro that Steve Soast kind of fashioned for him into a Boss DM-2 into an f- outboard Fender reverb unit into a 310 Tweed Bandmaster amp. Ooh. And, and if and you just, just YouTube Steve Samuel's guitar, there's maybe two or three uh, things up there. And his tone, I, I started watching him when I was 20, and it was 20, 21 years old, and it was really formative to me. It was, it was just like the sound of... Uh, like you picture like like if you take oil and let it drip out of a can you know and it, and it kind of slowly goes down it had that kind of oozing thing about it mm-hmm. You know, like a out of out of mind experience as a listener just so amazing sounding and he's a really swinging player he's he's since passed on but a very sophisticated chordally and melodically and a big influence on me. And he played these Dan Electro type guitars. So I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. As well as did Junior Watson, who was obviously a mentor to me when I was coming up. Um, All right. So now we'll move on. (laughs) A little bit later... In the mid 90s, I started playing with Rod Piazza and it was the first time that I really was in a band that started flying a lot. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to take the hollow bodies and I was, I had Telecasters, I've always been, I've always had a soft spot for Telly's, but Telly's in that band with like the amps that you would get back then were like Red Knob Twins. Yeah. Or The Twin. hmm If you were lucky, maybe you got an old amp, but, um, you know, the the fenders through that just wasn't right for the music. So, I saw this Harmony Stratotone uh, at a store in Oakland, California. There were two of them on the wall. One of them was really clean, and this one had the guts hanging out of it. It was obviously very dirty. And I, I thought, man, those are cool guitars. And I, I passed, I didn't buy them. And I kept thinking about them. And the next time we went up to the Bay Area, this is maybe like 97 or something like that, 96, 97. I went back to that store and this one was still there. And the guts were still hanging out of it. And they wanted 275 for it. And I gave them 260 and they threw in a pack of strings. And I got some duct tape, and I duct taped the guts up to the side of the guitar. And I played it that night at a club in Santa Cruz called Moe's Alley. And as soon as I played it, the drummer and the bass player and the, and the rod all looked over at me, like, cause it was like the end of the night. And I said, oh, I better give that guitar a shot, you know? And uh, The pots are a little dirty.
0: Um, it has a nice go ahead oh sorry i was gonna say it has a nice fat doinkiness to it are you also kind of playing near the bridge
1: i was there at the end yeah 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 it's just one pickup it has you know a switch that's full throttle and then a switch where you can set the tone knob to be a little rolled so you could you know, conceivably do that. I think most of the time I just left it on the position where I could use the tone control. And um, just great. I mean, I don't know what this thing weighs. It's probably like five pounds or, or something. And I started using it and uh, friends of mine saw, like um, Junior got one. Uh, Smoky Hormel got one and then that it branched out to like um, Smokey was playing with um, Tom Waits at the time. Tom Waits got one. Charlie Musselwhite got one. Mark Rebo got one. And then it kind of started to spread. And I yeah. used it in the first year or two with Mavis along with a Telecaster. I used to bring two guitars and it's still a great, it's the best sounding neck pickup I own. It just, it sounds so cool, but if I want to bring one guitar, I've got to bring a telly, you know, yeah. to get, yeah, but amazing. And I've, I've had, I've had other stratotones where I had them modified to have a second pickup and those are cool too, but I ended up getting rid of those and just keeping the first one that I had. If someone's looking
0: for one of those stratotones, what do you need to know about them when looking at them? You know, cause for a lot of guys, you know, that, that don't, aren't and again this is not a derogatory term but who don't know as much about the funky guitars you know when you get away from like fenders and gibsons and stuff like that what do you need to know when you're looking at one of these um
1: well they i mean they went through the roof price price wise like yeah to a point where i don't know what they're going for now but there was a period where they were going for twenty five hundred dollars or something this is insane um so they're very consistent um, I, I, as long as you get a good price on them. I don't think you can really go wrong. You, some of them need a little TLC with the bridge to make sure because I don't know if you can see this, but it's like this miniature scale archtop situation going on here, Right. very little break angle here behind the bridge. Right. Not a lot of downward pressure. Yeah, and this one just lucked out to where it it's fine. But I've seen other people have to screw the bridge, or I mean, the tailpiece down closer to the top so that it has a break angle. Um, I had I didn't need to do that. The pickups are just amazing. Again, they're like these 3 or 4K pickups, but they're flat like a pancake, and they're, so the wind of them is very wide. Mm-hmm up close to the strings, they just have this magic that, that you can't really, I mean like really open sounding and flat. Um, I don't know, I love them. It's great. <laughs> I might have a to play in this. <laughs> <laughs>
0: that, that neck looks huge.
1: It is. It starts off down here in kind of like telly world, like 50s telly world, and mm-hmm. it just get bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> and the crazy thing is you, you think, ooh, but it's a very comfortable shape. There's no crazy shoulders on it. It just, you play it for a little while. And this one has the original frets on it. You play it for a little while, and at least I, I got it adjusted to it pretty quickly.
0: Yeah, are the, are the frets small or, or big on those?
1: Small and that yeah. I, if I was going to really play this a lot, I probably should get it refretted. But there's something also in the struggle on this guitar that made it sound, yeah, honest. yeah. Like, so I never did. Um, I don't know what to tell people. I mean, I would, uh, by I, I mean, better to play one in person, yeah, see if it speaks to you. Like, my friend told me one time it's either feeding you or you're feeding it and you want it feeding you mm-hmm. guitars you don't want to be working too hard to try to make something out of it you want that that instrument to feed you so that you're not thinking right so um all right you want more you want to, try sure. to run through them? <laughs> you know, what el- what else you got well, I, okay. Um, I'll do a quick other telly. This is a guitar that I originally, a black parts telecaster that I originally got from a, a buddy of mine named Kirk Fletcher. Yeah. You know Kirk? Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. <clears throat> Kirk's a dear old friend, and, and um, I knew him when he was, you know, bef- I think before he could even get into places that I was playing at. He tells tells people that I was the first person to let him sit in on the LA blues scene, but I don't don't remember that, but I do remember that he was a kid. And I remember this guitar hanging on the wall of Jimmy's guitars in Hollywood across from the Guitar Center. It had a different neck on it at the time. And it was Jimmy's way of putting together a parts telly and it, it would have been in the, uh, probably the early 90s that I saw it, it was $300 and I passed. And then the next thing I know, I'm at a gig and Kirk Fletcher, yeah, hey, I, I got this telly. He pulls it out, I go, did you get that from Jimmy's? And, you know, so, so Kirk lets me borrow it, he sits in and I'm, I'm pl- I had a, another white uh, telly at the time and parts telly and I'm playing this one and my drummer the drummer Steve Magallion you know in between songs he he leans up over the drum kit and he goes Rick he goes okay yeah it's a Kirk's telly shit's on yours There is nothing better than when
0: the other guys in the band tell you that another guitar sounds better just because they're so honest about it. Cause they're just like, then they're, they're such a better judge than you are cause you're playing it, but it's like, they're just hearing it. And yeah.
1: Yeah, totally. You know, you know, the deal. And so then I, I, Oh, wow, Kirk, man, that's a, well, oh, you lucked out, you scored. Well, I'll tell you what, if you ever decide to get rid of it, please hit me up. And then a few years later, I don't know why Kirk, sold it to me for $600. And I was glad to pay that extra $300 um, because I knew it was a good one. And, and then uh, fast forward of a couple more years, I, I didn't really care for the, the size of the neck that it originally came with. And I bought one of those Greenwich Village custom guitars at one point. You yeah. know, and that guitar just didn't work for me, but I loved the neck. So I swapped, I I sold the, you know, I swapped the neck and put it on this. And all of a sudden this guitar even became bigger sounding. And then Don Mayer wound some cool low wind pickups for me, very authentic sounding. And I've got it in the like early fifties blend wiring. Right,
0: yeah. That's a very cool wiring scheme that I don't know
1: why they don't use that more, yeah. Well, you don't, with with it, you don't have a tone control, so that's tough, but people that aren't familiar with it, basically what it means is neck is neck pickup with a cap in it that's kind of uh, rolls off the highs. Mm -hmm. I adjusted the cap so that it doesn't roll off as much highs on this guitar. Middle is neck by itself with no tone control. Bridge position is when you've got both controls when you've got the tone control pull up, it's regular bridge position. And as you start uh, winding the tone control down, it becomes middle position. Mm-hmm. But then you get all these different uh, gradients between middle and bridge that are really cool. And I think if you listen to my opinion, is like Gate Mount Brown's Okie Doki Stomp, I believe was recorded on a early telly or no caster, broadcaster or something. With a blend because it's like barely any neck in there, but it's not full bridge. Right. That's my opinion. Anyway, like, um, you know, like. Um, I mean, that's different than bridge. That's full bridge. This is regular middle. I don't know if you can hear that over. Yes.
0: Yeah. Too. Yeah.
1: So I left it in that world. And then I, this guitar, I leave with 12s, um, tune down a whole step because uh, it's really good for, you know, the pops thing. Like, you know, like really sounds big. And I used to travel with this a lot with Mavis. He's got an old, an old sticker of Mavis. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> and I recorded with it. You know, I've used it a lot on recordings. It's really a good guitar. It, it just sounds extra special good it, down a whole step. So that's that one. Uh, I guess I'll just keep going through this.
0: Yeah, do, do one more. One more a highlight, yeah. What's the, what's the
1: what do you got? What do you have left? Tell me that. Well, I have my fifty-five Les Paul special. Oh Let yeah, me... we got
0: to do. Let's you just want... finish. Let's do it. Come on. Okay.
1: All, right, all right. This is another one of those things where I scored. Um, it had been finished a couple of times before I got it and the, uh, the pickups weren't original. So I put um, Tyson tone P90s in it and some really good um, pots. Basically the only thing that was original on this guitar was the pick guard, um, the body itself and the wiring. And so I was able to score this maybe like a year ago. It's just a really strong, good version of a Les Paul. It's seven pounds. It has a big neck. I put a, um, I did change one thing. I put a push pull for phase in the middle so I can yep. yeah, I can get that going. And I put one of those um, uh, bridges on it that looks stock as a little bit of an intonation thing. It uh, yeah, help with that. Yeah. And I love these pickups. These Tyson P90s are great. Okay, so that's Les Paul world, but I've got one other that's kind of cool. One other. Do it.
2: Yeah.
1: Now this is a 90s Strat that belonged to Pops that Mavis gave me a couple years ago. Um, yes, and it's got a, a taped-on set list in Pops' writing. Wow. <laughs> and on the back plate, it says, Two Pops Staples from the City of Chicago and Fender, 1996. It's got some tape on the back, and it's still got the tape on the back of this mm-hmm. thing. It's actually... Uh, right now, the metal pickup isn't working it's got the lace sensor pickups in it and it's there's a lot of pictures of pops using it yeah you know in the late 90s mid to late 90s um kind of a different type of guitar than i would normally play but it has that emotional connection that it was his and mavis gave it to me and i i leave it in middle i mean i leave it in e flat because that's where it was when i got it you know it was a little it was out of tune but that was his tuning at the end
0: Wow, so he, he so he tuned down to E flat at times, or was that yeah. just what he, what he tuned? What he tuned to? You know? I
1: think it, most of the time it ended up being what he tuned to. Now I don't know what he did. He may have tuned to D uh, in the fifties at times. Maybe he was tuning to a piano, or I'm not sure. You know how or a tuning fork or what? But um, I think most of the time, especially in the later years, he tuned to, to E flat. <laughs> it's um it's you know it's i'm I'm hoping to use it on some gigs at some point i just need to get this I, i need to find one of these lace sensor pickups and get it for some reason that pickup is just dead
0: yeah what a sweet gift from
1: mavis yeah there's it was that we were playing at a festival in chicago and backstage and there's a room full of people and she comes walking out holding this Strat. And I, I thought, you know, it happens from time to time that the promoters will have her and maybe me sign a, a guitar mm-hmm. that they're going auction off or something like that. And I thought she was bringing me one of these things to sign it. And, and I, I realized I, people are taking videos. Like when people got their phones out, like some other people in the band knew what was going on I didn't have a clue. So there, there's, there are these photos of, of when she gave it to me. And she started crying, and I started tearing up, and it was, it was really something. And I'm really honored to have this. Wow, ha, one of Pop's guitars. Yeah, That's, yeah, <laughs> it's incredible. It is, and I, you know, it, it's it's even got there's plastic still on the pick guard, and and like, it's it's an interesting guitar. <laughs>
0: Well, very cool. Well, Rick, I've really enjoyed getting to sit down and talk with you and, uh, you know, I hope people will, will check out your, uh, your new album. Hope, uh, you know, hopefully this next year, maybe, uh, maybe it's a year after whatever it is. I hope, you know, I hope, you know, we all get the chance to see you play or, or, or see you play with Mavis and, uh, yeah, it's yeah. just been a real treat to sit down with you and get to hear your story. So, thank you, Rick.
1: Yeah, it's been fun talking with you. I, I hope we make it down your way and we can hang out and maybe pass some guitars back and forth. And absolutely, that would be that would be great fun. Because I like watching your videos, and I watch quite a few of them. Oh well, thank yeah. you. Ask Zach and <laughs> yes. like I love it. I love that you 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 uh, shine a light on some of the unsung heroes of of Music and guitar playing in particular. Yeah,
0: I I mean, they're just those are just people that I love. I mean, those are just guitar players that I that I love. That sometimes I'm, you know, when I'm talking to sometimes younger players or even players my own age, sometimes it's like they're not aware of those guys. And I'm like, you know what? This is this is just me saying, hey, this is somebody you might want to check out. And why don't you, you know, here's here's a lick they played. Here's some here's some songs that they played on. You know. This might influence you. You might like this. So
1: yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for doing
0: it. Yeah, well, it's a lot of fun, and thank you. you bet. All right. Well, thank you, Rick. All right. Goodbye.